the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Livestock Podcast. This podcast is designed to give producers up-to-date information on all things relating to livestock. It's been funded jointly through the Farm Advisory Service Animal Welfare Programme and also the Veterinary Advisory Service. So a big thanks to Scottish Government for their support. So hello and welcome to this Livestock Podcast. This month's focus is on to sheep again. I'm joined today by Fiona Crowden, who's a VIO with SRUC Vets in Aberdeen, and by Kirsten Williams, who's a beef and sheep specialist with SEC Consulting's livestock team. So hello to you both. Hello. Hiya. Thank, thank you so much for having us on. Excellent. Um, so Fiona, um, you're working in the vet labs. Do you want to just give us a wee indication of what your role is there and some of what you're you're seeing at the moment? Um, so... Part of my role certainly is working in the post-mortem room um, and doing post-mortems on anything that's really died in the vicinity and farmers are looking to investigate a wee bit further. Um, so at the moment, it's mostly lamb issues. Um, those back-end lambs are a little bit ill-thrifty. We tend to see a little bit of ill-thrift coming through in an ill-thrift investigations. Um, and there's, being sheep, they, they manage to die suddenly as well. So that's, it tends to be the two presentations. We get some submitted for, for ill-thrift, just what's going on, why my lamb's not growing. You know, obviously a profitability issue there with them, them not finishing. Um, and also, yeah, lambs dying this time of year as well. I think when we look at sudden death in lambs at this time of year, it tends to either be, as you say, clostridial, or it can be the the, the pea side of your ovivac and heptivac peas, if I'm allowed to use trade names, um, which is your Mannheimia hemolytica and your um, Biberstinia, which used to be known as the pasturellas, so we'll call them pasturellas just now, and your pasturella pneumonias, um, which commonly are, are vaccinated against. Um, we see a few folk every year who have decided for whatever reason not to use clostridial vaccines. Um, and of course, we only see the disasters, <laughs> the people that lose the lambs and they come through the, the, the vet lab. But we do get a number of people every year who have either stopped, have dropped their their um, clostridial and, and pasturella vaccines, um, possibly through economy, possibly because they, they're not getting that, any deaths, so they don't see the need for them. Um, and there's also the people that aren't following the the manufacturer's recommendations for timing of vaccines. So they're not doing the two vaccines four to six weeks apart. Um, you know, there's there's a vaccine in May and another one in September and and a little bit of bad weather or um, change of pasture and a good number of, of them kind of fall over with a, a um, pasturella type disease. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. I think uh, yeah, if you've if you've got a problem, especially the the pneumonias, the pastoral pneumonias, there's there's a an element of management in there. Um, obviously, things like stress, housing, bad weather, um, dip in nutrition, change of nutrition. Sometimes you see pastoral issues going onto a really lush lush pasture. Um, so there's a management side of things as well so actually paying a little bit of heed and potentially not weaning onto a really rough pasture and a really good pasture and, and doing two stressful things at once 
and just looking at what you're doing and how you're stressing these lambs out um, alongside vaccines. Vaccines will never prevent all disease, but they do help. So some farmers might find a booster helps. Um, but also, I think we need to pay a little bit of heed to, to management as well. Does the mild winter have any implication on it at all? Does that increase I, the relevance? I think if they're housed, definitely. So it just ends up being the same sort of situation as, as calf pneumonia in that if they're housed, if it's not great sheds, if the bedding's wet, if the poor poor ventilation overstocked. I mean, especially if, if not as many have been sold off grass and there's just a few more in that shed than than there has been in previous years, then then certainly there's a good amount of predisposition to, to getting a bit of pastoral pneumonia in there. Can I ask Fiona as well, is, is there a certain amount of iceberg here as well or clostridial issues, you don't have it or you're dead? Or is there an underlying murmuring clostridial issue in, in some cases as well? Clostridial is usually quite good at being black and white. Um, occasionally you'll see something slightly sick with a clostridial. Sometimes you can get kind of like a Black's disease causing a, a lingering illness before it causes death. But as a general rule, um, if you if you have clostridial disease, it's it's usually fairly fatal. Yeah. So our understanding of sudden death equals clostridial is, is pretty much what is going on. Yeah, I, I wouldn't just quite can equal. It's that you've gone a bit okay. homesy and on your... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> logic there. So sudden death definitely can be clostridial, and clostridial is always going to be on the list um, for sudden deaths. Um, but we do see sudden deaths that, that we end off up in a in a different direction. So, so things like ruminal acidosis. Um, quite often, people pop their lambs onto a stubble field that's got a bit of grass on it. They think the lambs are eating the grass, except they're um, nibbling up the the grains that have gone over the back of the harvester and end up with a ruminal acidosis. Um, so yeah. Absolutely, it can be, but not always. Yeah. And are we seeing, so we've had a very interesting year, and we've certainly been talking about weather all year. It's been a remarkable year. Are you seeing much in the way of liver fluke coming through into these lambs now as well? Not really. Surprisingly little up in Aberdeenshire, and not an awful lot reported. Occasional um, ones reported from from the rest of the, the country, but not really. It's been quite a dry year generally um probably less so down in Dumfries but quite a, a low risk year in general for liver fluke I think yeah so we've we've not yet um in fact we're nowhere near having half of last year's rainfall yet so it's remarkably dry down here as well so um it's interesting Kirsten have you anything you want to add on the on the fluke front anything you're seeing with your clients no, it does. It seems it seems relatively quiet on the the fluke side. It's um, I guess you get your years, and it hugely goes with the climate, doesn't it? To to how high the risk is or how how low the risk is. But it, it, I agree with Fiona. There's there's just not really a lot of um, chat or incidents of it from what people are saying. Yeah, and Fiona, is it fair to say that complacency is the the biggest killer here? You know, is this the year that somebody somewhere is going to get tripped up um, and, and what should we do with that in mind? I think this is the sort of year that actually some serology can be quite useful if your vet happens to be on the farm anyway or you can tootle some sheep um, and especially some lambs because they're naive um, and just screen for, for exposure to liver fluke. Take about six animals, um, do a wee serology test and that will test for exposure this year. 
Um, and from then, you can decide whether the, the broader flock needs treatment, whether that, that group of animals has been exposed to fluke. So it's certainly something that we can do um, just to, to see what's going on on your farm and on your particular farm. Um, and assessing your pastures and, and your individual risk. You know, you'll know if there's a wet, boggy pasture that you're not sure about versus the nice dry one that, that never has a problem. So assessing the, the pasture risk. And then if you're worried about exposure in a particular group, you can then go on and use serology to, to make that treatment decision. Yeah. And so, yeah, so fluke wise, obviously, um testing some kind of discussion with the vet yeah. uh, about your policies time well spent absolutely yeah every time chatting to your vet about a problem is never never time badly spent i think there's always value to be had for it um some people might just be fecal screening um instead of blood sampling and obviously you can take those samples yourself as a farmer so there's less of a cost involved with with that sort of testing so equally fecal screening for for flukes an equally valid way of looking for for fluke on your farm. Yep. And and what about those? So we were you, you mentioned ill-thriven lambs earlier on, and I, I think a oh, I suppose once we get through the lamb crop, once you, you everyone's got a bottom end. But that those stale lambs that aren't moving, what what would you be testing, or what would you be looking at with them? What's what's the advice to people that have got lambs that are a bit stuck? Yeah, so we see, we've certainly seen a few cases up in Aberdeen where we've had kind of the whole lamb crop really not doing as well as the farmer would have hoped um, and really selling quite low percentages off grass. Um, and that, a lot of the time, it comes back to chronic parasitism. Um, and these lambs have just been battling either high pasture burdens or haven't been wormed in a timely manage, manner. Um, and they've got like a a secondary enteritis, their their guts just are, are unhappy. They're not really absorbing what they need to from the nutrition they're eating um, and just end up ill-thriven. Now, some lambs genetically are just a bit better at coping with lamb burdens and they tend to, to cope okay. Um, and then other lambs just suffer that little bit more um, and become more ill-thriven. So certainly that, that we can see. A lot of the time that gets tied in when we go testing for trace elements. We quite often find trace element deficiencies in these animals, but it's really hard to separate kind of chicken and egg from that. You know, is it is there a trace element deficiency in there contributing to it? Or is the fact they've just got really unhappy intestinal tracts, meaning they're not absorbing things properly? Yeah, Um on those lambs as well, Kirsten, so we've got, assuming we've we've assessed the parasite load, we've dealt with the parasite issue, what what advice would you give to people in a, you know, mid-November, December, um, what do we do with those lambs that are, are a bit stuck, you know, in regards to rations and finishing? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting, actually, um, when Fiona was saying there that it was, people are finding that they've not got as many away as normal off the grass and that they've got this high kind of parasite risk. And I think if we cast our minds back to lambing time, it seems like so long ago, but how bad the weather was and how much those lambs had had to fight, especially the late born ones that hit with the snow. And then thinking of the role of colostrum and how that helps with um having a, a healthy start then helps the rest of their life as well and there may be something kind of going on there as well mightn't there Fiona? 
Absolutely. I mean, and certainly up in Aberdeenshire, it's really slow to get the grass going this year. Um, and those intakes, if they're if they're low in the first six to eight weeks of life, they just don't seem to make that back. Um, and yeah, if, if places are slightly heavily stocked, they've been slightly overgrazed in the winter, they just didn't get going this year at all in the spring, I don't think. Yeah. And sorry, Robert, I didn't really answer your question there um, about what to That's do okay. with them. <laughs> what to do with them now, <laughs> I went off a bit there. Um, so, yeah, like obviously the, everything has to work as a package. So um, health and nutrition equals performance, I guess. And there's no point in having one right and not having another one right. And it's thinking about have they have they got the forage in front of them? If grass is starting to run out like it is in so many places, is there alternative forages that they could have? Is there, I don't know, do you start to put out silage and hay? Is there forage crops they could have? Is there a way to eke out the grazing a bit just to make sure that they do have the grass in front of them? And I totally appreciate that inputs are very expensive this year. And But when we're looking at if there is a lack of grass, these these lambs are worth a lot of money at the moment and they're really worth looking after. And um, bringing in supplementary feed in the way of concentrate feeding is also an, another thing to do. But also thinking, like I know Fiona said about doing trace elements, but making sure that they, they do have what, what they require as well. Yeah, and, and I would endorse all of that, but I would also add in the... You know, the store ring's a really tempting place to go to at the moment as well if, if you know, you've got lambs that aren't finished. But, you know, the, a lot of these lambs are achieving a, or, or making significantly more than what they would have made fat last year in the store ring this year. So there's an, an exciting option there too if you're if you're out of grass and maybe prioritising grass at this stage for, for next year's lamb crop rather than um, trying to finish this year's. But Yeah, yeah absolutely. And as you say, Kirsten, I mean, the lamb market. Do you want to say a wee bit about the lamb market, actually, about where we're at? Yeah, it's it's a really it's really positive. And it's funny, all year I've been saying it's really positive and then it, it just keeps keeps staying there. And it's it's fantastic. It's it's really interesting, actually, to follow follow the trends and, and what happens. But they are, we're, we're in a fortunate position that, the amount that has been killed so far this year is about 10 to 11 percent back on where it was this time last year which shows you that there's a, a really big market requirement for lamb and whenever there's a market requirement it always always means that there's a premium to be paid so um it's it's really good and there we're we're still well in excess of 100 pounds for a for a prime lamb and here we are in november it usually starts to rise in November through until they start to come short, kind of February, March time. So I think it's going to be a really exciting kind of winter. And with the store ring being so buoyant, it, again, it just shows that people have got the confidence that, that that price is going to stay high. We've got shortages globally, say like New Zealand, Australia. Um, they've had bad lambings. They've had extreme drought that's not the size of their flock. So there's a global shortage of lamb as well, which again is really helping our, our position uh, and putting that premium onto our lamb. So I think it's just just a great place, but it's also thinking about these inputs to, to buy for lambs. It, it's thinking actually, what are they worth? And it's, it's not using using last year's figures to if I if I buy creep at two hundred pound my lamb is worth eighty pounds. 
it's actually adjusting those figures and seeing seeing where the kind of point is and they're they really are worth looking after yeah and and i really i really take my hat off to those the, the guys that buy a lot of store lambs you know they they help out the you know they're a major part of the system and they really help out the the breeders um and actually they're taking they're taking more risk on the same number of lambs you know they've got lots more money tied up this year but as you see Kirsten the confidence is there and it's it's great to see that um at a time when in the rest of the economy it's easy to be to see negative you know negative signs but the the lamb end of things and, and to an extent the beef end of things too is really pretty buoyant and has been for a good while it's been it's been a good year it's good um so Fiona now as I said, we're into the tail end of the year. Um, most farms will be uh, be tupped by this stage. What about so meeting the needs of those those newly in lamb ewes or mid mid pregnant mid midway through pregnancy ewes? What do we need to be aware of uh, when managing that group? Um, I think at this point, as long as your topping's gone well and they they've got a, a reasonable amount of food in front of them, this is you know, once the embryos have implanted, they're pretty stable things. They they toodle away quite nicely. They're not growing terribly much. They're not putting a lot of pressure on the you at all. Um, and so it's reasonably benign this period, I think. Um, but I think it is because it's a benign period, it's a good opportunity to, to reflect maybe back on the year you've had um, and plan the year going forward a little bit, and and there is a bit of an opportunity to to look forward and and see what you can do better, what you can improve upon, um, and just do a bit of of health planning and target setting. Dare, dare I say it? And yeah, really just think about what's what's ahead in the in the lambing year. Yeah, excellent. And and Kirsten, I've already asked you about your thoughts in the lamb market. I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out again. Um, what about scans? You know, we've got quite a lot of fit use. Are you expecting to see a lot of uh, big scans this year again? Now, that is a crystal ball question, isn't it? Um, it's it's really difficult to say. It's impossible to say because there's some parts of the country had so much grass when tups went out and there's other parts of the country that were really struggling for grass. Generally, yeah, yows are fit, and so going to the top fit usually gives you your your highest chance of producing eggs, egg survival, the embryo developing, and everything else. But like last year, look how the weather turned and completely stripped condition off of sheep as well. So we can we can ask for high scannings, but there's a point that we probably don't want them too high because the higher your scanning percentage, the higher your losses or the lower your survivability is so there's there's a, a a place that's good and every every farm is different so you've obviously got a hill situation and a lowland situation and what what works for them is is completely different scanners are just really getting started now with like there's in lamb seals starting there's your pedigree flocks that are lambing in January and that scanner is just really getting started now so I've not really heard any scanning results to date to be honest yeah it's interesting I'm just thinking in, in the southwest so in, in Ayrshire here we've we are exactly what you just described we've had an awful lot of grass a you know a great opportunity a great back end um but certainly I think most folk would be viewing their scan as a you know 
you know, a, a wee bit concerned that they're going to have more threes and fours than, than they normally do, um, which is becoming actually a a wee bit of a trend. You know, we've we've had a, several mild grassy back ends uh, in the last few years, and and those big scans are becoming more of an issue. So, um, is there anything we can do if that with that in mind? Obviously, not not now that they're in lamb, but going forward. So, if we if we are dealing with big scans. Is there anything you or what would you do to try and reduce that lamb crop? It seems it uh, goes against the grain a wee bit for some, but certainly in some areas that we're scanning 220 and 230, how can we drag that back a wee bit? Yeah, there's obviously the the management of them and there's there's no requirement when when yows are fit, there's no requirement to flush them. And it's it's looking at what what grass they're on coming up to lambing time. It's also looking at the genetics that you're using. So are you using a a female or a male that has got um, maternal attributes and is one of them um, a high number of lambs? It's maybe a time to for for farms that are struggling with that. It's maybe a, a time to actually look at what breed suits their system because the environment or the climate is changing um, I think every, every year it feels like the months completely change and just now we're in November but we're at, it feels like we're in autumn there at the weekend we had a day that was 16 degrees and it, it just feels all a bit offset doesn't it and um, genetics and nutrition play a huge part in, into what the scannings are. Uh, so Kirsten We've got, um, I suppose, a, a worrying situation for the spring. We've got a um, significant change in the fertilizer price, and, and grass looks like it's going to be, or, it, or it's going to be, a lot, a lot more expensive to grow grass in the spring. Have you seen many people, again, also off the back of last spring, a very challenging spring? Have many people altered their their lambing date? Has anybody put their tops out a bit later? I would say it's typically due to weather decisions rather than fertiliser driven decisions why tupping dates have changed. Yes, fertiliser is going to be extremely expensive. It is. Nitrogen is absolutely through the roof. And um, I think there's more people thinking about how they're going to utilise their grass more so in that introducing the likes of rotational grazing and seeing how it how that would fit their system so that they can maximize what they're getting from their grass or maximize the utilization from the grass the the people looking to push lambing back is generally because of what what the weather was like in april how how bad it was and um, quite a few of those have have pushed it back but again, there's no, there's nothing saying the snow comes a week later. <laughs> like it is, it's it's a difficult thing to do. And I think when when we have such wild things happening, that it's usually one year and five, isn't it? And to to change a system on one year, it, it is difficult. But at the same time, it's having it's having a a plan B or or knowing knowing what else to turn to. So likes of the, the nitrogen being so high and, and grass supplies um, being questionable this year it's making sure that there's plenty of forage in stock it is um, thinking how how best to to utilize it thinking um, which class of stock should have priority of what grass so the likes of through the through the winter say when yows are in mid 
mid-pregnancy, uh, they've got a, a kind of low, that's like a maintenance demand of, of diet, isn't it? So their, their embryos implanted, they're just kind of ticking away in, in maintenance. But then as they get closer to lambing, um, they, their requirement obviously increases. But then when they're lactating, their their kind of nutritional demand is actually over twice that of what they're in mid pregnancy, so it's thinking about when that when you really need that grass. So obviously for your lactating sheep to get the lambs off to the best start, to make sure that they've got their feed supply, it's making sure you've you've got the grass for them then. So is there a way to think for this winter, there's plenty of time still to give pasture a really good rest, if at all, by taking sheep off, be it wintering onto stubbles, onto forage crops, just something to give that grass a good break so that you can get a bit of a bite in the spring and reduce that requirement on nitrogen. I think, I mean, it's a great point and it's something historically... And I'll, I'll certainly put myself in this team as well. You know, I've been particularly bad at as grazing heavily through the winter and getting to the spring with nothing and actually stockpiling that grass in the spring. Even if you're, you know, you can supplement grass earlier in the season to make sure that you've got that good stockpile, that good cover of grass for when you really need it, when it's at its most valuable, when you've got, you know, a, a lambing you and a, a newly lactating you. Um, and it's just, it's like almost a mindset issue really isn't it that we historically we've grazed it because it's there but we now need to get better at, at leaving it alone and giving it its time just to um to recover and, and to to reset and go again that's it and like you say um earlier on this the store ring is strong so is is there somewhere that you can offload some stock to potentially free up some grass or can you move them around the farm so that the you're maybe grazing just now near the steading and then you can you can move them further away as winter progresses to to then know that those were the last grazed fields they've had a bit of of time okay if the weather turns you also have to think about being able to get to them Um, but having that rest is so so valuable for the grass Mm -hmm. and and what about for wintering as well so again historically what was wintered away was um, usually ewe lambs, and in general, generally that is the case. There's a lot of a lot of hogs go away from home. Um, but what about breeding ewes? So if you've got breeding ewes away at grass, is there a worry about transition and and bringing them back home, or, or can we be quite relaxed about having ewes away from home? Yeah, I've obviously when they're when they're tapping, it's it's a nice time to to put them away. Because then they're they're settled in into where they are, they're they're not coming home fast if they're away just now. So you're well past your kind of say your first fifty days. That's allowing that your your embryo is completely developed, happy, it's implanted. So after that kind of fifty days, you're a bit it's a bit easier to um, move about yows. You don't have the same stress element then. So putting yows away for winter many people do do it and um, it's it's just taking them off the pasture as well so it's it's reducing that kind of burden of winter build up you know stuff like if you're you're getting dirty underfoot that you're you're contaminating pasture with with poor feet that type of thing you're you're getting them off for the winter to kind of free that up Um, 
so yeah, I, I don't see an issue with with that. And when you bring them home, it's have in mind that they are pregnant and that it's not trying to hash about. You know, that it's it's a low stress thing. You're you're getting them in, you're bringing them home, you're putting them onto fresh pasture. So there's there's no issue with with that at all. The other thing that people are doing more and more is housing their yows, even like pre Christmas housing yows. Um, grouping them up on condition score or breaking off young yows from older yows, getting the nutrition to them right. But again, it's just thinking that the longer they're housed, the bigger the disease build up. And if that's the house for lambing time, it is a long time that there's a disease build up and potentially feet problems can start as well inside. Yeah, I mean, if I could faintly come in on that, I think... If farmers aren't sure that they're free of OPA and, and Mighty Visna, I think housing use for prolonged periods of time really can cause kind of significant transmission within that group and accelerate a problem. So, you know, doing something like a cull use screen um, and just popping four cull use, thin cull use into into a surveillance centre for a post-mortem to look for these diseases and, and provide yourself with a little bit of reassurance that they're, they're not within the flock. Um, there's no blood sample um, for OPA. There's no blood test for OPA. Um, but for the likes of Mydivisna, Yonis, um, you, can, you can screen for that um, with a blood sample. So even blood sampling, um, a few cullews, 10 cullews, say, um, that are thin just to reassure yourself that you've not got a wee grumbling um, disease issue that's going to be compounded by your, your management decisions um, through the winter. Yeah and Fiona how would that how how does OPA present so if you don't know if you've not looked how would you know or wh- why would you be suspicious that it would be OPA in a flock? Um, so OPA is one of what we term the iceberg diseases which is five conditions um, in in sheep that by the time you see them there's an awful lot more going on within the flock than than what you're seeing um opa is a respiratory tumor so it's a fairly slow growing um affair that um infected sheep that have grown quite significant tumors um shed virus in their respiratory secretions so basically in their breath and then when they drop their heads to to use troughs or or drinking troughs or like especially if they're on on the floor that fluid can um, flow from the respiratory system and that can be really infectious um, to the other using the flock. It can take anything from months to years for that disease to um, develop in these exposed animals. Some will develop tumours, some won't develop tumours but over time Things like housing and housing for more prolonged periods will, will really increase the spread um, and you can be in a, a fair bit of trouble by the time it, it gets diagnosed within a flock. And, and do you think as an industry, if we fast, and this is now another crystal ball question, but if we fast <laughs> forward a few years down the line or 10, 20 years down the line, do you think this is something that we're going to get, are we going to get on top of it or is it going to get on top of us? I think OPA. As long as we've got a reasonably extensive system, I think we can probably identify it. We can call out thin news. We can do ultrasound scanning. Your vet can come in and ultrasound scan for for tumours. And most farmers that have identified OPA and have put in measures to control it seem reasonably on top of it. 
I think the thing that might well bite us quite significantly going forwards is Mighty Visna. Um, and the incidence of Mighty Visna has, is just quietly doubling. Um, so it's gone, I think, 15, 20 years ago, it was about 2.5% and it's gone up to 5%. And it's another slow-burning, long-term respiratory um, issue that, that just causes poor performance, early culling, um, thin use. And that's that's something that you can buy in. And if you're not buying in from accredited flocks, farmers can be completely unaware it's in their flock, completely unaware they're selling infected animals. And it's usually about 10 years from introduction to a farmer going, I've got a problem here. And at the point of I've got a problem here, roughly about half his stock will be zero positive and infected, which is a real significant um, production limiting disease that, that's going to have impacts on, on flocks and certainly farmers have made the decision that it's really too hard to get rid of it and they, they've you know culled the whole flock and started again. Yeah it's quite a thought. It's, it, is, um... it is. It's worth I think it's definitely worth screening and looking for it and um, yeah providing a little bit of reassurance that it's not there and if you catch it early it's much more easy to manage than if it's it's you know then your flock's riddled with it and and it's much harder to get rid of it at that point yeah a, a difficult one um and again i suppose it goes back to that good quality health planning discussion with a vet doesn't it so it yeah. should be really part of that yeah table I think discussion. it's so easy for a negative result to feel like a waste of money you know, you, you mm -hmm. go, oh, we'll do a cull, we feel all keen and we'll do a wee cull you screen and oh, no Mighty Visna, no Yonis, no CLA. Oh, that was a waste of money. But actually, that's really positive. You can feel that, you know, you're looking for these diseases, you're comfortable you don't have them um, and you're on top of it rather than letting it get to ca catastrophic the end of things before, before you're detecting them. You know, if you're on the front foot, if you're detecting it early, you've got a good chance of controlling this disease and eliminating it from your flock um, compared to yeah the opposite of that yeah so you, uh, you're never worse off knowing that you've got a problem than burying your head in the sand and, and hoping you don't knowledge is power somebody yeah. said some sometime yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, inspirational stuff so just to to sum up from you both, is if we're assuming the audience we're talking to are a user tupped, tups are back in, what what are the jobs that the, the kind of top two or three tips to these to these guys uh, at, at this time of the year? Kirsten, do you want to go first? Sure. So I think looking after the tups is really, really important. They are half of your flock. They are a big investment every year. And looking after them after tupping is is something that I think there's quite a lot of improvement to be made. They're, they're quite often the, the forgot, forgotten ones in a farm, aren't they, that they're taken out and put in a park. Um, but these guys, they have the potential to be really, like, they, they work hard when they're out and they generally lose a bit of condition score which is about 15% of their body weight so um, then coming into the winter to be low in condition it's it's quite hard on them so it's making sure that like that they're either housed or that they're offered somewhere that's sheltered and that they're given some good quality forage 
and if they're if they're under conditions where three that they're even given a bit of concentrate feeding as well um, working up to about half a kilo a day and it's just thinking about having a, a good look at them and if there's wounds or there's sore feet or anything it's such a good time just just to get them fixed for the winter and just get them and generally if you get them through the winter you've got them for next year's tapping as well and it's thinking about what vaccinations they they still need you know do they need their clostridial um, vaccinations that type of thing as well so I think looking after the the tups post-tupping is probably where I would go with that excellent thanks Fiona have you anything to add I think yeah just as I said before it's 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 a time to look back and you know if you've still got some thin cull use around um, doing a little bit of disease surveillance and do some screening just to, to see what's going on and check there's there's nothing that you don't know about in there um, and yeah, having a look back at the year, see what what went well, what went badly, um, and reflecting on it, and and seeing if there's a way that we can control those things and improve it in the years to come. Excellent. So, thank you very much. Some really good words at the end there. Just a simple tips and, and ideas of things we can do just now or things we should focus on um, to you both, uh, Kirsten and Fiona that's been great, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I really hope our, or I'm sure our listeners all, all have enjoyed it too so uh, thank you to you both and good afternoon Thank you, bye bye